0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Happy Friday Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. Today, Clarissa and I interview Melanie Martin. Melanie Martin is a registered nutritional therapist, having studied at the Institute for Optimum Nutrition in Richmond, London. The principle around which she was trained is that of functional medicine. Mel looks for the underlying causes of health issues rather than treating symptoms. Those underlying issues could be lifestyle, genetics, diet, existing drug treatments, or a whole host of things. Since she qualified and started practicing more than 10 years ago, Mel has become increasingly curious about psychology as an underlying cause or cofactor, And she studied at the Institute for the Psychology of Eating in Colorado to try to understand more about this area of interest. Why some of us, Mel included, have these lifelong, often secret and shame-filled battles with food choices. Mel has also studied metabolic health extensively and has completed the nutritional network, low carb, high healthy fat training for practitioners, as well as many continuing professional development hours. Mel heard Bitten Johnson speak about food addiction in 2021, something she had intuited and had often heard clients allude to. So this was a real missing piece moment for her. She consequently completed Bitten's sugar and holistic medicine addiction training. She most recently completed a 15-week introductory course in counseling psychotherapy, and her next learning and development step as a practitioner is to train professionally as a counselor and or psychotherapist. Today, Clarissa, Mel, and I talk about the following. Mel's personal and professional journey, what are some of our common hormones such as estrogen and progesterone and why do they fluctuate? How do hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and cortisol impact our appetite? What can we do? Does she have any suggestions for someone listening today? And she answers our signature question. Welcome, Mel. Thank you again so much, Mel, for being with us today and the weird time change things between the US and Canada and the because next week your time will change and then we'll be all right again (laughs) in the world. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Of scheduling and getting things done, right? Yes. Yes. So we would love, we always love to start off with like the personal story. So we were wondering if you'd kind of give us, you know, a story. Tell us about your personal and professional journey. Like why this? How did you get here? And, you know, what do you think we should know? Okay. So... I'm going to actually start in my mid thirties.
2: Okay. So I had two small children and I was really frustrated, by I, I was, you know, my children were my whole world and I wanted to do everything I could do to help them to be these little healthy, lovely people and, you know, and not grow up with the food issues that I grew up with. And so I started by asking you know, pr- professionals like my midwife and, and the doctor and, and you know, everywhere I looked, the information about what a healthy diet is was, was just, the, the messages were conflicting. They were really confusing. And it was really, really frustrating. So around that same sort of time, I found this book called Immunity Foods for Healthy Kids by someone called Lucy Burney. And it was just amazing. And it, it did the rounds of all my mummy friends because it was just full of really sensible advice and, you know, real food recipes to, to cook for the whole family. And I noticed, so I had looked to see where she trained because she was a nutritional therapist. And long story short, I decided I wanted to train. So I started training as a nutritional therapist at the Institute for Optimum Nutrition in Richmond, London. And they use a functional medicine model to teach us. About all things health and how to practice as a nutritional therapist. And while I was learning all this stuff, it was (laughs) I sit in my lectures and I was outraged so often by how come I had never been told this stuff before. Like uh, you know things like I learned about the gut microbiome and immunity and mental health and B vitamins and how it's all interlinked. And uh, so that was that part of the story. And then do a little bit of a backstep pre-babies. I started out. Kind of a working life as a dental nurse. And then I found myself, I worked my way into the pharmaceutical industry and worked in sales there. And while I was there, I was involved in selling a new drug at the time, which was for type 2 diabetes. And I was really struck as we were talking to diabetic nurses and GPs, I was really struck by how we're like selling this drug for a diet and lifestyle disease that you don't touch. <laughs> And, you know, everybody, all the medical professionals knew this, but they were having these really big problems trying to, you know, get people to do what they knew they should have to do. It was kind of like knowledge wasn't power. Something was in the way. So that was the beginning of my real curiosity about what is it? What is it that stops us doing that? Those things that actually we know when we have the information, we still can't do the stuff or some of us. So since then, really, my practice has evolved to focus on metabolic health and behaviour change, I guess. And what I do now is, it's just, it's super important for me that I'm meeting my clients where they're at, you know. And the things that I like to do really, really well are, and and really focus on are, you know, listening to people, really listening to them, because very often I notice that that's probably the first time anyone's actually sat down and listened for ages. And isn't there huge power in feeling heard? so yeah so that was that in terms of my own journey I've had a a very up and down relationship with food I kind of didn't eat at all when I was 18 because you know sort of stuff going on in my life and I'd I'd grown up with a mother who dieted from, well, I never remember a time when she wasn't on a diet. I never remember her time, her talking positively about her body. And then she kind of sort of, it was like she sort of switched that focus onto me. As soon as I hit puberty, it was like, I was really hungry. And she used to say things to me like, if you don't, if you eat like that, then, you know, you might not get fat now, but you'll get fat later. And I grew up with this. And it's just, that's taken me years to get over. So I guess that kind of has influenced you know, the sorts of people that I'm really passionate about helping now too.
0: So if I was, you know, a client of yours, I think one of the things I find so often is that we just don't understand enough about the hormones. And so can you explain to our audience, what is estrogen and why is it important to know about this?
2: Okay. So I'm going to start with what hormones are. Okay. And so hormones are chemical messengers. And what that means is they deliver kind of messages to every single part of our body. There is not one single part of our body that's not affected by these chemical messengers that are hormones. And they exist in a kind of this incredible I call it a dance because it is, it's this constantly moving and changing, incredible dance. So I think that's where we need to start oestrogen, progesterone and testosterone, oestrogen this side of the pond, <laughs> is there are, you know, our sex hormones effectively. And men and women have them, all three of them, but just in different quantities. And then the other thing I want to talk about a lot, and this is balance. Just going to drop that word in there, okay? This whole thing is about balance. And that's something, again, I I say on a daily basis, because isn't life, the whole of life is about balance, actually, but specifically with these hormones. So Yeah, let's have a quick focus on estrogen. So estrogen actually promotes insulin sensitivity in our bodies. So that's a good thing to kind of remember. And that's where it sort of segues into metabolic health. And it's also involved in how we, where we store our body fat as women, when we are in that fertile period of our lives. And there's, you know, there's plentiful estrogen, our ovaries are producing estrogen. I thought I'd look at side of kind of uh, symptoms of low oestrogen, although I just want to say before that, there's a lot of crossover. One of the things I've noticed is, you know, when you just like you do your Google search, it's like, oh, it can get really confusing because then you think, okay, well, that's that symptom and it's the same as low progesterone. And so, yeah, I'm going to go through them, but just let's not get too hung up on them. So low oestrogen, symptoms of low oestrogen, can include things like you know bladder infections, low energy, low mood, hot flushes, dryness, dryness throughout the whole body because estrogen is absolutely involved with mucous membranes. But particularly, and this is kind of a a perimenopausal and a postmenopausal thing, vaginal dryness in women, which is, you know, something that I'm glad the conversation has got louder about because it's something we need to talk about more. Symptoms of high oestrogen include bloating, rapid weight gain, breast tenderness, mood swings, heavy periods, anxiety, depression, migraines, poor sleep. But there's a crossover there between kind of low progesterone and high oestrogen. And that's because I think sometimes it's very difficult to be able to pull apart which one's causing which, because the whole thing about oestrogen and progesterone particularly estrogen and progesterone is they balance each other out you know so we can end up with i think one of the, the places where we often fall down and perhaps where people will just go straight to thinking i need to supplement my estrogen because it's low or supplement my progesterone because it's low is that actually what could be happening is that your estrogen is not necessarily high it's high relative to your progesterone levels So if you're not ovulating every month, your progesterone levels are going to be, you know, lower than they should be. And that can make your estrogen look higher than it actually is, which is what we term estrogen dominance often. So estrogen dominance is often a a result of these anovulatory cycles, which we see in perimenopause and also in PCOS, where the progesterone is not produced because, okay, and I don't know if this is too much information, but. I'm fascinated by this because, okay, a little bit of an admission here. I'm a nutritional therapist, been practicing for 12 plus years, right? And I was never really very interested in my cycle. It was like, oh, you know, this thing happens once a month and it's really annoying and awkward. And I'm just really pleased when it's finished. And like, I don't want to track my periods or my, you know, my cycles. But actually, I just want to say it's so important. If you're someone who has any sort of an issue, track your cycle. There's loads of apps and things out there now. So yeah, the progesterone part. Okay. So every month in a menstruating woman, when you're in that kind of fertile place in your month, in in your life, hopefully every month, you know, not with everybody, an egg starts to mature in your ovary. And as it's starting to mature, at the same time, it's not just the egg, it's covered in this follicle. It's surrounded by a follicle which matures at the same time. And I kind of see it like it's a bit like a Scotch egg. Okay, there's the egg in the middle, and the follicle around the outside. Yeah, and the follicle's really important as well because you know that starts to produce estrogen as it's maturing, and that tells the um, lining of the uterus to start thickening, and it does all sorts of other things. You know, it's it's kind of a a real domino effect with the hormones. And then what happens is mid cycle, say you have a twenty eight day cycle. About day fourteen, you should ovulate. So this luteinizing hormone comes in and that helps this ovary leave the matured egg, leave your ovary, enter your fallopian tube, and that's where, you know, maybe it'll get fertilized. But the follicle is left behind, That's sort of like the outside of the scotch egg that stays behind in your ovary. And this is the really amazing thing. It becomes a temporary gland and it produces progesterone. So after day 14, and I'm kind of like skipping ahead here, guys. I'm really sorry. But day 14, you ovulate, ideally, or mid-cycle. And then about, you know, a few days after that. So progesterone levels will start to increase as soon as you've ovulated. And they peak kind of around day sort of 20 to 24. I mean, again, that varies slightly. But that's where the progesterone comes from. So if you don't ovulate... No progesterone is going to happen from your ovaries. Adrenal glands also produce progesterone. So you're going to have a little kind of base level amount, but you won't get that big spike that we're designed to get. Too much information, sorry.
0: (laughs) No, I think it's so important because I would say like, what is, how does this affect appetite?
2: Yeah, great. Thanks, Clarissa. So it affects appetite because the way to think about this is what is your body trying to do this time of the month Essentially, every uh, this cycle every month is about getting you ready to make a new human life. And when that egg leaves your ovary and enters your fallopian tube, what could be happening is there could be a sperm there ready to fertilize that egg. That becomes an embryo, It moves into your uterus, implants, becomes a baby. The progesterone, part of the progesterone's job, is to further thicken the lining of your uterus, so it's really nice and thick and kind of all ready to receive and look after that new life. And there's a lot of energy needed for your body to do this. Kind of, so they reckon. I heard someone talking the other day saying that they they think that our metabolic rate increases by up to ten percent around that time of our cycle. So our body needs more energy. So progesterone actually decreases insulin sensitivity. It makes us a little bit insulin resistance just for a short period and fairly moderately every month around that time. Insulin stimulates
1: appetite because it wants us to eat more food. It it needs more energy. So let's eat more food. That makes sense. But I also want to like bring out. So like even if it increases by 10%, we're only talking a few hundred calories. Not that we're into counting calories or anything like that. But I also think like you know, especially when we're dealing in the world of addiction, you know, and it can increase these crate right for this energy dense foods, which typically are the more highly palatable, like hyper processed kinds of things, just because we're not out in the wild, like seeking out those tubers or whatever it would have been, you know, even like a sweet potato or a yam, you know, so many of us are drawn to the tub of ice cream or the brownies or the cookies. And really what, what I'm hearing you say, Mel is like, yes, there is this, there absolutely that influences it and it increases it. But really it's like, we're talking about adding like a sweet potato to your meal each day or or doing something right? That like helps to facilitate what the estrogen and progesterone, the dance that they need to have during, you know, these different times within the month.
2: Am I understanding
1: yeah. correctly? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's such
2: a good point, Molly, because I think that that's where this whole issue of the fact that we you know more and more as human beings we are living in an environment which is not designed for us it's just not a healthy place to live as a human being anymore you know we have the food industry my opinion but you know the food industry is purposefully making foods which are addictive you know and it's not just my opinion there's there's you know is it michael moss's book the book hooked there are some yes. really, really good books out there anyway that really detail exactly what's going on. And so I think very often that's, that the reason that, yes, absolutely addiction is going to you know, be coming into play there. So if you're somebody who is using an abstinence-based approach – to manage your food addiction then that's going to be a really tough time of the month for you and maybe just knowing that maybe just realizing that it's not your imagination actually there is something happening in your body it's so powerful isn't it to realize that you're not going mad again it's not more what's going on with my brain it's kind of like really this is a thing and so maybe that helps you to manage it better you know my my kind of one of my over sort of arching bits of advice about food is real unprocessed you know so yeah maybe you do increase your carbohydrates I mean I've heard that said but actually your body's asking for energy it's not asking for carbohydrates. we don't know if our body's asking for which macro it's asking for it's asking for more energy so we could actually just get that by eating more of the foods which we know are you know in your food plan.
0: Yeah, you know, this is often like for me in when I tell like my clients, I really like them to go and map out that luteal phase for them and say, this is a time where we might increase protein and increase fat.
2: Yeah, I love it, Clarissa. I was just thinking that, you know, it's like, who says it has to be carbohydrates? I mean, I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but it depends who you are and what's happening for you. And, you know, that's where that kind of this individualized approach and why it's so, so important that we treat the person sitting in front of us, not us or the last client we saw, but that person is really key. And I think, you know, yeah, a lot of people kind of, you know, you get that sort of, you hear people saying, oh, God, I just want to lie on the sofa and eat pizza, you know, <laughs> but or whatever your, you know, whatever your kind of like that food is that that you're triggered to think of when you're hungry. So it, I think it's important to remember that it's not, it's not an excuse, you know, or a reason to, to go for those foods. You never need those foods. You you, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's, and I think that's just a great, like little, like, let's just stick a pin in that, like that is like, keep that at the top of feed that runs through your brain guys. Right. That's you don't actually know what macronutrient it is that your body is asking for but it is asking for more so it could just be more of the same of the things that already work for us even if there is this voice inside of us or this compulsion or whatever it is to go for fill in the blank whatever that might be we ne- we actually don't need those things those are man made things you know recent man made things when we think about all of history so find the thing that actually works for you so i'm really curious then to know so, what about for our clients who have started to move into periomenopause? Maybe they're in menopause or postmenopause. Like, what do we need to know about progesterone, estrogen, testosterone? Like, what do we need to know about the dance of those hormones during those next phases of life?
2: Okay. So, I'm going to actually start with menopause and what it is, okay? So, menopause is classed as that time when you have not had a period for a year. So, you have stopped ovulating and you haven't ovulated, which will mean you haven't had a period for a year. And that can happen any time. And again, these are rough ages because there's there's always, you know, there'll always be people who sit outside of these, but kind of roughly between about the ages of 45 and 55, you'll see that you know, you could you could go into your menopause, and then the period leading up to that we call perimenopause, which is really just that kind of transitionary period between ovulating regularly and being fertile and not. So, if you think about it, so if we go back to when we are, you know, fertile and at that age as women well, I where we can we can get pregnant. So when we're at that phase when you know we can get pregnant. Our ovaries are producing estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone every month. And like I said before, they are also produced in our adrenal glands by our fat cells, estrogen, by our fat cells, but there's a big you'll so you'll see a, a drop, a decline in those hormones. And so and you and so you'll see associated kind of effects. So, you know, we do start to see as women that maybe joints will get more achy and you start to experience. Vaginal dryness, maybe dryness in other parts of your body. Gosh, all sorts of things. What a big thing is a change in where your weight is, weight deposition as a woman. So when we have that estrogen that's being produced by our ovaries every month, body fat tends to be around our bottoms and our thighs, you know, and our breasts and maybe our arms, those sorts of places. Post menopause, you see a shift. To that body fat starting to store more around your middle. And actually, it's really interesting that women have a kind of a protection, a certain degree of protection against cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes up until that point where they become postmenopausal because of estrogen. Estrogen makes us more sensitive to our own insulin. So it kind of, pre- you know, goes some way to preventing or reducing insulin resistance. So that's kind of the menopause perimenopause things and and again I think it's really important to stress here that it looks different in everybody so we're hearing a lot of stories in the media at the moment which again is brilliant because it raises awareness of this issue for women because there's a ton more research that needs to be done into this area as well but some people have really quite symptom-free perimenopausal phases and then move into their menopausal part of life, they, they don't need to take any hormone replacement therapy and they're just fine. And other people really struggle. So I think around this kind of menopause, menopausal time, balance, again, is really, really important. And this is a time when you want to really start to think about, so I get lots of people coming to see me about this, and they'll, they'll be saying things like, you know, the stuff that I've always done to you know, maybe regulate my body fat and to feel well. And the way that I eat isn't working for me anymore, and I feel dreadful. You know, I've got these awful hot flashes. I'm anxious. I've got terrible mood swings. I've got migraines. All these horrible symptoms. Really heavy periods, and they're not one. And I don't know whether I'm coming or going. And that's the time in your life, I think, when you really do. It can be really beneficial to kind of have a bit of a an audit of your diet and lifestyle, and change it so that it suits what's happened to you now. You know, menopause is not a medical condition; it's a natural transition that we have always gone through as women. And it's really interesting how, in some countries, you know, you see that traditionally there have been women don't suffer with the sorts of symptoms that perhaps we, living in these these um, countries, where.
0: <laughs> we're eating this kind of, you know, the sad diet, do struggle. Yeah. And I guess for that, I would say, like, how does sugar change our hormonal access? Like, how is it a contributor to like early puberty?
2: Yeah. Okay. So this was really interesting. And I, okay, so this is what I understand about what possibly... Is having an effect on this. I'm not sure we know 100, percent and I'm not an expert in this field. You know, I know enough to be able to help my clients. So first of all, sugar, okay, raises insulin levels. We all know that, yeah, and we know that insulin is an appetite stimulant. Insulin makes us hungrier, and so the next thing that happens is you've got the impact that sugar has on a protein. You've got the impact that raised insulin has on a protein called sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG for short. OK, and SHBG is really important because it's this little protein which whizzes around our body and it kind of it binds to estrogen and testosterone. So it's absolutely about helping us to keep our hormones in balance. But if you've got chronically raised insulin levels because you are eating or drinking a diet that's full of sugar and refined starches, which is effectively sugar, your SHBG is going to be reduced. And so you could end up with more of these hormones whizzing around, which knocks your hormone balance out. So I think that could be part of what's going on with that sort of earlier puberty with children you know the the stuff that's controlling estrogen is not working so well so maybe there are high levels of estrogen and I think the other thing is belly fat so belly fat produces aromatase aromatase converts testosterone into estrogen so perhaps I don't know for sure that's another way in which we end up with higher estrogen levels at a younger age in our girls but I have to say I'm hands up. I'm not, I don't know That's I'm speculating.
1: Yeah. Based on like just your understanding and, you know, I mean, again, we're talking about clinical experience here, Mel, like we, we know you're not like a researcher (laughs) in this area, but from that clinical experience, you know, I think about not only like early puberty, but then I think of things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, you know, and does sugar, right, and insulin and all of that, does that play a role in impacting those hormones that then, you know what I mean? Like, how does that all play out? Do you have any sense of what's going on there at all? I I think it's, yeah. So
2: I think definitely sugar impacts them. I think via those two mechanisms I just described, I think also sugars pro-inflammatory. We know that. So inflammation is also really contributing to this. And then, yeah, you go back to kind of maybe insulin resistance is starting so much earlier than it ever has done before. And we know that, I mean, you had Ben Bickman on here, didn't you? And, you know, the three primary causes of insulin resistance are hyperinsulinemia, so chronically raised insulin, stress, and inflammation. I think, you know, perhaps our children are more stressed than they've ever been before. I know for sure that, you know, I've got a teenage daughter and if you talk to them about kind of what their primary health concern is at the moment, it's anxiety and kind of, you know, low mood. So I think stress is definitely playing a big role. And also, I think our kids are eating a diet that looks different to how it's ever looked before, you know. I mean, how old am I? I'm kind of, I'm in my fifties. I didn't eat like that. Food has changed out of all recognition,
1: you know? So yeah. Does that answer your question? Is that clearer? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just, you know, trying to kind of set the groundwork that, you know, what we eat matters and Mm. not that, you know, and again, like, I know that not everybody who listens to this podcast or maybe everybody who listens to this podcast maybe knows and understands that maybe they, I mean, they're listening to food junkies. Like they, they probably have some understanding that they have some sort of disordered relationship with food, whether it be from a chemical dependency standpoint, you know, leading to that addiction side of things or, you know, something else going on. But I think it's really important to kind of understand that, that we are consuming things that are contributing to these metabolic disorders, hormonal disorders, whatever it might be. And and so it does, it helps to kind of set the, you know, kind of lay the groundwork because my, you know, Clarissa asked like, you know, how does sugar then impact this early puberty does then sugar. So not only does it then play out in these other kind of things that happen for people with a uterus, like PCOS, endometriosis, you know, I'm wondering too, then does this, you know, insulin resistance or high sugar levels, whatever it might be, does that also then play into early menopause or what people experience even in post menopause? I think undoubtedly it does, yeah, because you know, insulin
2: resistance effectively is kind of going to lead into your metabolic health not being what it should, and so you know we know, don't we, that you know if your metabolic health is off, it's it's dysregulated, kind of everything else in your body is not going to work as it should. You're going to, you know, lose muscle mass. You're going to increase your fat mass. You're going to, you know, your moods will be affected. We know that, you know, raise sugar levels, promote inflammation that has an effect on brain health. Actually, there is something else which I haven't mentioned, which I think is really, really important and plays into this. And, you know, kind of going back to when we were talking about the hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, the other thing is xenoestrogens. Okay, so xeno foreign estrogens, the stuff that's in our environment. And the things which so effectively what is a xenoestrogen? It's something which is not made by our body. It comes in from the outside and but what it does is it acts, it mimics our body's own natural estrogens, but it's way way stronger it? Has a, they have a much stronger effect than our body's own natural estrogen. So, you know, that's definitely playing a part. And I think also with this kind of, we were talking about children and why they're, you know, reaching puberty earlier. I think that's having a huge impact. I think it's also having an impact on how we move through that perimenopausal, you know, period and how we are as menopausal women. And you know what? Sources of xenoestrogens include plastics. Okay, everything's in plastic now. And pesticides sprayed on all of our foods and preservatives in all of our foods and Air fresheners, like how many of us have got plug-ins in our house, or we're spraying stuff, or you know, we're we're burning scented candles, perfume, personal care products, laundry products, hair dyes, nail polish, it's everywhere, and this stuff has an impact. And then, as I've talked about xenoestrogens, kind of feel like I also need to talk about phytoestrogens, because that can be a part of the answer. So phyto stands for plants and their estrogen. You know, they are properties found in plants which mimic our body's estrogen, but have a lesser kind of effect and can act as a really nice sort of balancing tool. So they can be useful post menopause. They can be useful as you're transitioning into menopause to kind of help balance again. And you'll find those in soy, but and this is really important, in traditional fermented soy products like tempeh and good tofu and things like that, not industrial soy products like yogurts and milks and and, you know, fake meat and stuff like that. It's, they're also found in vegetables. So, you know, broccoli, for example, can be really, really useful for kind of helping us to metabolize estrogen and seeds. Seeds are a really great source. And actually, there's, you know, seed cycling can be a useful tool to, in a, from a sort of a no harm approach to help perhaps balance hormones as well.
0: Hey Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again
3: for listening. Hey Food Junkie listeners, have you read the book Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction yet? It all starts there. This is the book with the basic theory and clinical knowledge of food addiction. Read this book first to get the basics. Our Food Junkies podcast jumps off from the book and is the ongoing breathing version ever growing and ever expanding. Our podcast introduces you to all the issues of food addiction and the who's who of food addiction today. And if we at the Food Junkies podcast have inspired you to action, either to quit sugar or some other triggering foods or behavior, and you need some extra support, then please join the free Facebook group I'm Sweet Enough Sugar-Free for Life. There you will find a community of people who come from all parts of the spectrum. From the new and just starting out, to the long-timers who call themselves food addicts in recovery, to counselors ready to give back and help you. The Facebook group even offers free support Zoom groups. Basically it's a great online living resource of food addiction to help you stay sugar-free for life. So please join us
0: now back to the show if you have enjoyed this episode please let us know we love to hear from you kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on we love getting feedback from our listeners can you tell us a little bit more about cortisol Because I know it's a stress hormone and I know we definitely all are affected by it, but how does it affect our health and appetite?
2: Okay, so I think that there are a few things to talk about here. It's really, really important. So cortisol, stress hormone, our adrenal glands sit on top of our kidneys and they're where cortisol is produced and they're also what produce estrogen and testosterone. So we can't, we really need to look after them. We live in stressful, you know, so many of us kind of have chronic stress going on in our lives all the time. And so let's just, So we, yeah, it's really important. They are a system, an organ, which is really, really important for us to support and something I often look at with my clients. But let's just go back to the kind of that interplay that cortisol, stress, insulin have. So cortisol released in response to stress. And then the body, in terms of its stress response, will start to release sugars into your bloodstream. Okay, some stored glycogen comes back out. and it's, you. So you end up with your bloodstream full of glucose, which is great when you're going to run away, <laughs> you know, for your life and you're going to use that up. But, you know, when you're sitting behind your desk and someone's being horrible to you or you're worrying about paying the bills or you're sat in a traffic jam or your kids are stressed out at school or, you know, all the stuff that we get stressed about and the exact same stress response happens doesn't matter what's causing the stress we end up with these really raised blood sugar levels so in the entire blood volume in our bodies there should never be more than sort of between about four and five grams of sugar at any one time it's really really strictly controlled because sugar is toxic to you know our organs that's why type 2 diabetes is such a horrible disease because it damages literally everything. So, you know, our body knows this has really tight controls. That's what insulin is. One of, you know, insulin's major jobs is to get that sugar packaged away into the cells where it can be stored or turned into fat. Any excess sugar gets turned into fat by insulin and then stored away nice and safely so our body's not getting damaged. So just to go back, raised cortisol equals raised blood sugar which leads to raised insulin levels. Raised insulin levels chronically cause insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, vicious circle. Insulin resistance then means that more insulin is required to do the same job as before. you got insulin resistance, a much smaller amount was needed for. And then you end up with this kind of vicious cycle where it just, you know, if you don't change something, diet and lifestyle factors, it just continues to get worse and worse. So
1: yeah. Absolutely. So just out of curiosity, because I feel like I hear this all the time, like raised in, or raised cortisol, raised sugar, raised right, like how it all plays out. And and people are always talking about raised cortisol. Like, are there any quick, I guess, indications that I could be looking for that might tell me, hey, Molly, your cortisol's a little high. Maybe you should do something to bring that level down? Like how might I know in the day to day, are there, is there anything I should be looking for?
2: To be honest, I can't think of anything that's non-testy, but there is a brilliant test that I use quite often with clients called the Dutch test. And it looks at dried urine. So you collect five samples and you send them back to the lab and they can see from that what your cortisol levels are and they measure them, you know, from, so you'll do the five different times. And so they can see what your cortisol levels are through the day. They also measure all three different estrogens because we don't have just one oestrogen. We have three different types. So it measures all of them. The testosterone, the DHA levels, the DHEA levels, progesterone levels. Yeah, that's what I'd is. I don't think of anything else.
1: And once you do that test, like let's say somebody's listening to this and they reach out to their naturopath or they buy a Dutch test or whatever, does that company then, or are there guidelines or recommendations of what to do if they fall outside of normal levels? Do they kind of give them a to-do list, so to yeah. speak? Yeah, for sure. So you would only be
2: able to do that with a, through a practitioner. So a really good thing would be to look for a functional medicine practitioner or, you know, perhaps a hormone specialist, and they would they would be able to guide you. So they'd be able to interpret the test results for you because it comes back and it's complex. So you'd need somebody who could interpret those test results for you and then make them make sense for you and fit your life. And yeah, absolutely, Molly, give you the advice that you need to help lower those cortisol levels. It's really interesting. I heard Dr. Elizabeth Boham um, talking about hormone levels and, and you know, sort of things that can help around this. And she was saying that 15 minutes meditation twice a day significantly reduces hot flashes in women who are having them. You know, so mindfulness techniques are so powerful, you know, and that can be all sorts of things, can't it? A yoga practice. Not everybody gets on with meditation. It's really interesting. I was talking to a psychologist the other day, and he was saying that actually he gets more anxious when he tries to meditate. Cause he, he kind of needs to do something he's, you know, maybe more of a sort of a kinesthetic pro- person. So he has a practice that he does a little bit like yoga that, that he finds much more effective. So again, it's not that one size fits all. Everyone's talking about meditation doesn't work for everybody, but find what works for you. That can be so, so important. Yeah. But the other thing that really impacts cortisol levels, of course, is poor sleep, you know, if you're not sleeping well, that raises your cortisol levels. And then that raises ghrelin levels, which is your hunger hormone. So it's kind of all of this, isn't it? And realizing how it, it all
0: is interconnected, right? It's all a part of the same. And so I'm wondering like when it comes to GI issues or bowel movements or constipation, like how does that affect our hormones? So constipation actually can really
2: impact hormone levels. And it's something which isn't discussed enough because so many people are constipated. And it's one of those things that people are often a little bit embarrassed to talk about. And it's also really difficult to treat. Constipation can be a really difficult thing to help people with, but it is very treatable. So what happens is our hormones are removed from our body when we don't need them anymore, they are removed via our liver. So, our liver detoxifies them. And as a part of that detoxification process, something called conjugation happens, which is just a posh word for joining something to something else. So, the hormone gets joined to a substance, which makes it inactive. And then that's all hunky dory. And it should be excreted in your stool and leave your body. Job done. But in someone who's constipated, there are these little bugs which can be one of which is called beta glucuronidase there are other types but you know depending on what's going on in your gut microbiome and how balanced it is you might find that you have very high levels of this beta glucuronidase and what that does is it comes along and it uncouples the hormone from the thing which was making it inactive hormone now active again back into circulation messes up hormone levels so that's you know that's one of the ways in which constipation can really play a part in you know hormone imbalances absolutely yeah and you know and moving on from there so ensuring that your gut microbiome is healthy so getting enough fiber in your diet and fiber doesn't have to come from whole grains fiber can come from you know soluble fiber vegetables are a lovely source of fiber fruit i know you're a fan of apples clarissa i love you know (laughs) Apples are a great, lovely, gentle source of fiber because one of the problems with fiber sometimes is that people who perhaps have very sensitive guts or perhaps they have an imbalanced kind of microbial community and they're already suddenly upping your fiber can cause some, you know, it, it increases gas. It can Gas, bloating, cause... all like, of that kind and, of... yeah. So it's something you want to do gradually and gently, and kind of with a little bit of sort of knowledge behind it. Totally. And then the other thing, which is really important, is supporting liver function. You can do that with foods. So beetroot's great for supporting liver function. Getting enough protein, sulphurous vegetables. You know, so onion and garlic and leeks. Things like broccoli and cauliflower. They're really great. Eggs are really great for liver function. You don't have to go on some weird detox. Thing to have your liver being healthy it just needs the fuels that it needs to work properly and also some really great supplements around that can help with that things like milk thistle can be really useful so yeah just looking at the sort of systems which are important to support in terms of you know an overall approach this kind of lovely holistic approach to looking after our health and hormone balance you
0: would say that you're probably more on team feed like the microbiome, then Team Starve, right? Totally. yeah. Okay, good to know.
2: And you know what, Calypher, it's really interesting. So when I qualified, we came out as a nutritional therapist and we were taught that, you know, if we ever, say we did a stool test or we suspect. Okay, so the gut microbiome, is it works in a commensal way. So, you know, you have all these different little populations. It's like this big city full of lots of different people down there. And they kind of all balance each other out. It's that balance word again. and But sometimes, for all sorts of reasons, stress or you've had antibiotics or, you know, lots of things, that can get imbalanced. So then a population which was before held in check, and a good example is is yeast, for example, can just grow out of control because what was controlling it's gone because it got killed off by the antibiotics or something else. And so yeah, we were taught to kill it, kill it, you know, use things like oregano oil and, you know, stuff like this, kill the bad stuff, but it's much more about crowding it out now. So grow the good stuff and get it back. So the goodies crowd out the not so goodies.
1: Yeah. That's exciting to hear that, you know, again, I think the gut microbiome stuff is still fairly new. It's still like in its infancy, if you will, as far as, you know, research and understanding goes. Although Larissa and I know that like what you know clinically shows up many years, right? Like you know it long before they actually can quote unquote prove it with the research. But I like, I like that it's all kind of coming along though. And like you're understanding it's not about getting rid of one or the other, it's that balance piece. So it's about crowding out or making it so that the, you know, the healthy ones that you want to have are you know, doing their job and keeping the other ones in control, but that there there is some need for the other ones or they wouldn't be there. And so, yeah, Yeah. understanding and respecting that there is something going on internally that, again, it goes back to like what we're putting into our body. So I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about all the different hormones we've talked about today. And I was wondering, you know, What is your understanding of how we can use this information or or better understanding of hormones to help us treat food addiction? Because that's what we primarily do, Clarissa and I, and we're always kind of, you know, selfish and wanting to know how can we help our clients a little more or differently based on this information? So I think it comes back again to that kind of, you know,
2: knowledge is power or knowledge can be power or empowering maybe, you know, so Maybe it's the piece about when somebody is feels like you know they're sticking to all the stuff that they've learned they have to do to control those horrible cravings and find that sort of sense of peace and freedom. And then once a month it all goes pear shaped. Like, what the heck is going on? And so if you then, as their you know their their practitioners can can reassure them and explain to them what's happening, I think there is huge power in realizing that it's not in your head, it's something which is happening. And then past that, next explain that yes, you know, those thoughts probably are coming up now because of the, you know, the learnt behaviors and those those pathways in our brain which have learnt that, you know, when we're hungry, this is what we want, when we're really hungry, this is what we want. That actually we still have to not listen to those because we it's still about real food. It's still about increasing energy intake like forget the calories and the you know all that weird stuff which is our body's asking for more energy because it's busy it's doing some really important stuff so let's feed it and I love I love that word feed and also I really love when you just said Molly about respecting so I think there's a big big part there isn't there it's let's stop I think the other thing is it it feels like maybe with that knowledge we can start to work with our bodies Instead of fighting against them the whole time. So much advice these days feels like this fight constantly. And and my hope is <laughs> it doesn't have to be like that. You know, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to find it. But I don't think it has to be like that. I think you can find it.
0: Yeah, and it just feels so much more loving to say like, hey, my body right now is kind of a fat burning machine. So I'm gonna like set it up for success with some protein and fat. And I'm gonna enjoy this real food and it feels so good for me instead of like a punishment or, oh, I can't believe I'm having these cravings. Yeah, I just know that during my luteal phase, I need to have like the best meals planned, and I'm going to enjoy them all to the max. Yeah, totally. And also,
2: if I don't feel like going for my normal run or doing my normal exercise routine because I just haven't got as much energy, I'm going to respect that too. I'm going to rest. You know, because yeah. I don't rest enough either. Do we?
0: You know, rest no, in some... it's so true, and that's self care. A yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So where can our listeners find you, Mel?
2: Okay. So I am at melmartinnutrition.com. So I have a website. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, I offer a free chat, you know, with anybody who's interested in learning more about where, how I might be able to help them. And so, and I'm not, I'm really generous with that time because I think it's really, really important to get that opportunity to speak to people and answer any questions. And, you know, it's it's complete no obligation. Sometimes people choose to work with me, sometimes they don't. And that's cool. I love to talk to people. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with me if you want to.
0: All right, and we have a signature question, and it would be if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar, food addiction, and/or hormones. What would it be?
2: Okay, so I've gone deep and honest here because these are the two pieces that I think are really important, right? So I think this whole thing is not just about the physiology, and it's not just about the psychology. It's about the two together. So I would tell my younger self that her deep sense of shame, feeling of unworthiness and deep-seated belief that she was unlovable wasn't hers. It was her mother's stuff. And then after that, I'd tell her to stop eating grains straight away because oh my goodness, if I could have known that years ago, it would have saved me years of struggle.
0: (laughs) So yeah, that's what I would thank you so much for being here today with us, Mel. It's been so honestly, eye-opening for me. I thought I knew enough about hormones, but now you have just tapped into so much more. Oh, well, thank you both so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mel.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life support group. I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.